out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, the songwriter the, and performer. It is the one and only Delphi Newman, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. And uh, if you're curious to know what other bands she's been in, um, yes, she was a member of the Vital Disorders and also uh, was in the Box Brothers, who were very excited. Um, performed with Ian Dury on, I think, his album Apples. Also sung with Dream on Things Can Only Get Better and lots of other stuff. Anyway, you're going to find out more about that in the interview. So uh, without any more chat, um, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years. Delphi, take it away. Well, I think, um, I mean, I was born in 1963, so we're of a similar... We are. Um, you know, I mean, the halcyon days of, you know, glam rock and just kind of, you know, when I was a young teenager, I, was, I always say that I was a bit young for to be a true punk. And um, so I kind of got more into kind of new wave, but it was, you know, such good music around that era of kind of individuality. Uh, but I suppose my first, uh, you had David Bowie on your wall and I had David Essex on my wall. Nice. So I, we... I had David Essex and Billy Idol. Billy Idol, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah, I'm afraid. Different... I'm afraid. I was. I was a kind of a pop meister. I mean, I didn't. My parents didn't really play music. Um, my stepdad um, kind of did have some, but you know, they were kind of radio people. So I just picked up on Top of the Pops on a Thursday night. The radio, you know, the pop pickers top um you know top 20 and um but the the actual defining moment was i was so lucky to be able to go to west Brompton pavilion blimey that's incredible it is oh my god it was just it, i mean i still bring it up you know now it was actually you know we used to get a free bus coach from outside the cinema in fakenham because we i lived near fakenham and i was about 14 14 15 um, and we get a free coach up to West Brunton and it was rock against racism. So it was like you get a punk band and a reggae band or just or any sort of, you know, OCB, so African band. And, and, you know, I used to go regularly on a Saturday for probably a couple of years, Friday or Saturday. Right. And, you know, that, that was just the main boom Basically, that was, that, was, that was very lucky-ish, you know, in the sense of um, discovering such an amazing venue and place. Because, because I only just recently picked up the book, which someone put. I've got it. I've got it. I've got it. A few with this years list, ago. this list of gigs, and I was I like, know. they're all just going to be, you know, a bit John Peel, a bit punk, which would have been fine. Oh, no. It's like, amazing. oh my goodness, this is just extraordinary. And, and I, think um, it, you know, I was mesmerised. <laughs> it goes back to you know the 30s i think it was uh, it had big bands there in the 30s i believe yes. so i mean it literally has been going on that long you know kind of as a regular i mean now it's a car park i believe but um you know it, it's such a history 
Yes. So because um, I sort of was brought up in a sort of very kind of working class environment where I think when my parents got married in the late 50s, you know, they they kind of basically they never borrowed money. There was that generation and they kind of they didn't have a you know, I think they sold anything they had just to get sort of a bit of money to get a bungalow together and all that kind of malarkey. So we didn't get a record player in the house until the, the 70s when obviously there was a bit more cash flying about. Um, there wasn't a lot of cash flying about, really. But did you I mean, were your parents at all kind of, you said they weren't really that musical. Did they have any kind of interest in, in sort of music at all? Well, absolutely. I mean, my mum my mum used to break in, like her generation, who's the war generation. She was born 39. So, you know, their memories were really good. And they knew all the words to all these kind of, uh, you know, she'd break into kind of song, but she also had, uh, she made, she was an artist, sculptor, but she made her own guitar um, when she was kind of in her 20s. So there was always an acoustic guitar knocking around. So I actually taught myself, well, she played a few chords and she used to sing folk songs to me, the whistling gypsy. And and so I picked up some chords and then I suppose that kind of, you know, that would have been around sort of, you know, again, the same age, 13, 14, 15, picked up a few chords and, um, you know, it was always in the background. I didn't, you know, I, I went to a dance school and did a couple of performances, singing and dancing and stuff. But actually my dad, my, my actual dad, blood dad, who I didn't live with, um, he was a string arranger and he was quite a big prominent string arranger and he's worked in studios with everyone from Elton John, Paul McCartney, Cat Stevens. So every now and then I'd kind of go and have my, you know, annual visit with him or a couple of visits a year and he'd take me into a studio where he was working and I'd sit quietly. But that was kind of, I, I wasn't really in awe of it because I was probably too young. So I just kind of, oh, that's what dad does. Um, I mean, it wasn't really till I, well, I, I, I went to the West Brunton, 13, 14, 15, and then moved to Norwich when I was just after I was 16. And then within a year, I got in my first band, which was the Vital Disorders in Norwich. Right. The Vital Disorders. The Vital Disorders, which, yeah, was great fun. Yes. <laughs> when Norwich was kicking with live gigs everywhere the gala ballroom the labor club yes the labor club the Baron cross Baron cross center the three c's as we called it yeah. so when did you discover your voice did, when did you discover you know being able to perform um well i suppose i mean I, it was interesting how i joined that band because my mum as i said was an artist so she had kind of connections to the art school and there's a guy called ian wallace who's um a, a photographer and he set up in the upstairs of uh the art school he set up a a, a pseudo cafe and he had cameras a couple of cameras, I'm not sure what the project was, but he wanted to have me and another member of the uh, Vital Disorders, the, the main lady, Mary Dugan, we were both going to be plants as waitresses and we were supposed to ask people certain questions. They used, they were coming in for cups of tea and biscuits and this would, you know, promote uh, responses and that was part of his project. So the other waitress was Mary Dugan and when we finished that day, we had a cup of tea and Tom Carver, the drummer, 
came in to see her and they I overheard them talking about a rehearsal. Yes. And I said, oh, are you in a band? I've always wanted to be in a band, I said. And she said, well, we're coming, come to a rehearsal. And sort of within a week or two, I joined the band as a wow. singer with singer percussion with, with kind of other people. And that was just, it was fantastic. And, you know, we learned some, you know, I was learning the songs and we did some gigs. And I suppose from there, well, from there, um, I was with them for about a year and a half. And then I joined a completely different band called the Box Brothers, who were a swing, close harmony jazz band. They came to see us at the, um, oh, I always forget it, the infamous place gig, the kind of gay club that was down some Benedict's, what's it called? I can't remember it. My goodness. It was tiny. And so then I kind of moved to Bungie and I got involved in the swing band and I was with them a couple of years and we toured Holland quite a lot. And, and then Blimey. from there, I moved to London and then I kind of got my own kind of lineups together, yes. which I've had several of. Yeah. Yes. But just going back slightly, because growing up in this kind of area that is East Anglia, did you... Did you all run, did you get dragged to those kind of Barsham or Albion fairs at all, you know, and, and sort of in, embrace any of the sort of hippie, hippie Absolutely. Community? I mean, in fact, I think with Vital Disorders, I think we played at Ling Fair in right. 19, 1980. I mean, I moved to Norwich in 1979 and I kind of left them by 81. So... Um, you know, I think we actually played Ling Fair and that was my first introduction to uh, Norfolk, Suffolk, Albion Fair, um, which was fantastic. And then I was also kind of dabbling in acting and I kind of, it was when everyone wanted an equity card. So I kind of went to London and I joined a, a, a unit called Incubus, a touring theatre company. Paddy. And then with Paddy, yes, Paddy. With Paddy. And I got my equity card. And I, I kind of did, you know, we played, you know, they, they did the fairs, they did the beggars and kind of all sorts of stuff. So we did, you know, some fairs as well. So I have been to and played a few in different guises, yes. That's, you Fantastic. wouldn't believe it, but I've been in touch with members of Incubus, but I know probably not. He died. He died. He died. So there was... I think he died a few years ago, but Steve, Steve Dior? Yeah, um, so there's various people I've been saying, oh, I must try and get an interview with you because you yeah, know, yeah. there was, um, yeah, there's been, you know, a lot of these kind of people who are, who are around, like Tarby Davenport, who did yeah, Tarby. So it's quite interesting. I couldn't believe you said Incubus because it was such a famous company. And also the Box Brothers, because frankly, I had a friend who was really, he loved kind of R&B and I don't know, that kind of music. And he'd often drag me to a pub to see the Box Brothers, to see Paul Fitzgerald. Uh, and he'd say, look, yeah, something, and there were songs about chickens. I just remember thinking, oh, this is a song about chickens. Lots of songs about chickens. And, you know, it was so fantastic because we, you know, it was a real technique learning period for me, coming from the vital disorders where it was kind of very much about performance and, you know, just finding a voice, which I didn't really know. I mean, everyone sung and stuff. So, you know, it was kind of more about performance than it was, you know, making a um, a, a, a solo voice, you know, being yes. sounding. It was much more a performance unit. And then I moved to the Box Brothers, which was everyone had their vocal parts. And it was, you know, and I've always loved jazz anyway. So, 
you know, learning close harmonies and also doing lots of gigs with them. So it was kind of learning stagecraft um, and, um, you know, very fond memories. And, you know, they, they did a lot of gigs with, um, we teamed up with The Greatest Show on Legs. Yes, cool. But again, but it was, you know, with Malcolm Hardy, who is just, <laughs> you know, a god, was a god, you know, so we went up to the Edinburgh Festival and, you know, that really kind of, you know, we went on tour with them as kind of we were the band and they were the comedy group. Uh, so that was really fun. We did a couple of tours of Holland and stuff. So those early years were lots of things being thrown at me in terms of, you know, just a new, uh, a completely new discovery from sleepy old Stibbard in Norfolk to actually people out there, a lot of the big alternative people, you know, and there was lots on offer, paid gigs, gigs, full stop. Very well, there was, a, there was a, quite an, a narco theatre music kind of vibe at that stage as well. There was a lot of venues and there was a lot of little places. And like you said, yeah, you know, um, yes, Malcolm Hardy and people like Arthur Smith and... Uh, yes. Yeah, Arthur Smith, but, all the Edinburgh, uh, Chris Langham and, and I'm kind of friends with, well, you know, Facebook now because we're all older and we live in different places. But um, they were halcyon days for sure. So did you, you know, because you, you know, because I was, you know, I have to confess, I was um, far too young for punk and also growing up in a village, punk didn't really sort of hit those kind of places for decades, really. So did you kind of slightly have to do a bit of revision and go back? Oh, yes, the slits. When you're in people like that, you know, when you're in vital disorders, did you start sort of checking out people who'd been around a few years before you to... Well, Mary Mary Dugan was amazing. I mean, she she lives in Ireland now, but, you know, I have to absolutely toff my cap to Mary because she, she and Jane Tantrum, who sadly died quite early on she had um a disease i can't remember it might have been a cancerous thing so then she she died but they kind of wrote the songs i mean i wasn't writing then i was just kind of singing um but yeah the slits very much so and there was a, the the kind of african sunny sunny uh sunny o'day and felicuti you know, these were what Mary was listening to. Um, and, you know, again, I just, I, it's shame on me. I mean, I didn't have a record player. I mean, Nina Simone, I used to listen to Nina Simone even when I was with the Vital Disorders. So when I went to the Box Brothers and kind of got more into jazz, that kind of clicked in place too. But I feel lucky that my, the writing I do now and stuff, you know, combines all that punk, new wave, African rhythm, maybe rock, you know, it's jazz. Um, But actually listening, you know, I was kind of more listening to it on the radio or I'd buy, when I was younger, I'd buy the, you know, those compilation, those terrible top 20 compilations, which I had a great punk one, which would just have, you know, the top hits of punk. Or I was very much into Hollywood uh, uh, musicals, the old black and white ones. Yes, you know, I probably kn- knew more about that singing those songs than I would really about the current zeitgeist of what what was happening then. But you know, the filters were kind of out. I haven't got a record collection. I never have done. Did you? Um, <laughs> did during that period, were you into people like Frank Sinatra and Gene Kelly and Sid Charisse and and those kind of tap dancing kind of amazing routines? Oh, I love, well, I went to dance school when I was kind of in Stibbard when I was a bit, you know, the same age as when I was going to West Brompton. I was, um, 
you know, I did tap, tap classes. So I loved all that, you know, it was, that was kind of more the, the vaudeville aspect, I suppose, of, you know, being on a stage and entertaining. Yes. You know, to me, that was the whole, you know, it wasn't necessarily, oh, you know, I am a singer in a band or, you know, it's a musical, you know, a, a band thing. It was kind of just, uh, uh, I mean, I haven't really thought about it before, but I think all that, you know, I used to sit and just watch those black and white musicals by myself and just kind of enjoy the, you know, the dancing, the technique, the amazing standard that they had then in terms of polished performances and stuff like that. Yes. But then, you know, you know, being in the Vital Swords, it gave me a chance to just kind of express because it was you know, original music, which was very big then, you know, you didn't have to follow a form in a way. It was quite it was lucky. Discovery. It was also quite lucky because there were more gate, you know, there were several gatekeepers, which was obviously good and bad. But, you know, if one looks at it as a good thing, you know, there was like three weekly music papers, which had a big circulation. Yeah. And that was handy. You also had, you know, John Peel show. He was always trying to find the next new thing. So that was, again, going to give anybody you know, that possibility of getting airplay that yeah. would be kind of played across the whole country and possibly Europe as well. And every town and city had a sort of alternative, at least one alternative night a week, probably on a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. Absolutely. And so again, yeah. you know, you get, you know, what I found from doing this show is that you, if you've got to play on John Peel, you'd probably get someone and say, oh, do you want to come to Bristol, Leeds, Edinburgh, you know, Glasgow, you know, for our night. And you just got in a transit van and up you go just because you weren't going to say no to that. And so it kind of gave you that ability to perform live. And I think speaking to so many people, performing live and just going out there is the only way to really start to get better. That's a bit of a sweeping statement, but, you know, it's not, you know, you've got to meet the audience. You've got to see what works, what doesn't work. And whether you actually think it's a job for you or you think, God, this is a bit harsh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, this, you know, the period you're talking about and ha- having, you know, the murder maker enemy. I mean, I met the, when I was in London, who were the two brothers? Well, they, they weren't brothers, but they were called, they were journalists called the something brothers. They were quite big and it was kind of if they wrote well about you, then they would, you know, they were quite influential, supposedly. I can't remember if they were Enemy or Melody Maker, but I was also in a band uh, after, you know, during kind of me doing lineups of original stuff, my stuff, uh, called Jim Jiminy, who are very underrated and they were kind of, that was probably more early 80s and they were, they had a, a song called Do It On Thursday, which we got on MTV. So we did kind of, you know, that was when MTV were just starting. Was that 84, 85? I can't remember yes. MTV when that started. It was it was uh, kind of around that time, actually, yes. So that was quite extraordinary, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it exploded. So did you say that was the song which was called Do It On Thursday, which was the big hit? Do it on Thursday, 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 yeah. It was kind of became a kind of, you know, things can only get better. People would kind of sing it in the street. Do it on Thursday. Nice. Wait for your job and cash it in on Thursday. And I must admit, yeah, they, Wham, Wham wrote one of those classic songs in the early 80s, which was Wham rap about sort of signing on and don't get a job and sort of just go down to the club and dance. And it it was, maybe it was a very 80s thing. It was when when we all were kind of, because I suppose if you were a musician then, 
or I mean, you know, kind of they were kind of cash in hand jobs. You could, you didn't have to commit to a kind of payroll job in a way um, back in the eighties because you could get a cash in hand job and you could still rehearse and you didn't have to commit to to a job. So I suppose a lot of musicians kind of were on the dole as well because yes, well it was quite big because when you were sixteen. 79 i'm doing the maths hopefully that's right yeah you know i mean yeah. margaret thatcher gets into power then we have the falkland crisis then we have green and common the miners strike you know there's red wedge there's a lot of kind of political unrest at that stage i think there's another thing as well which was quite major at that point but most of the bands from that period you know had their period of being on you know signing on and there was also job seekers lance or enterprise land schemes which meant that you you know if you've suddenly had a thousand pound in your bank account which seemed to mis- mysteriously appear you could then sort of say oh i'm a self-employed and have a year of just doing what you want yeah that happened later I think that was later that was kind of more 87 88 I remember that because a friend of mine did that and uh it was but I mean opportunities I mean it's where are the opportunities now it's such a different world in in so many respects you know yeah um, I think being being creative now you just have to not rely on other people really you just have to you know, and that's why I think getting bands together these days is, is you know, um, you know, back then, because you could sign on, you'd have more time, uh, you know, as people did, you know, uh, form bands when they were at school. That's where it all comes from. You know, a lot of these bands, you know, formed at school and they had time, you know, when they were younger just to hang out. But I mean, as you get older, you need to work. So there's less time to hang out. And now... It's kind of, you know, where do, does one find the time to join a band? You know, because you've got to work and it's it's a different scene. It's a different gig. It's so much yeah. different. But look, so during that period, we had this sort of punk period. This is quite a simplistic kind of overview. And then post-punk, and then there was the sort of new romantic world. And I suppose there was psychobilly and anarcho-punks. And there was also the goth scene. But then sort of 83 comes along. And there's this kind of world of indie pop from... 83 to 87 to be honest that's the years of the smiths and then things really change i think ecstasy comes along and the musical landscape changes again and people get into dance so so during that kind of period because you're obviously the vital disorders the box brothers period i mean what happens after the box brothers for you is that when jim jimmery appears jim jimmery yeah well i went to london i actually got a publishing deal with um uh I know that was after Jim Jiminy so I suppose I'd always kind of as soon as I moved to London I kind of did that incubus thing and I did some touring uh went to Bristol with a company these alternative uh, uh touring companies but I found acting really boring kind of the whole scene of it so I, I that's where I discovered I was definitely more a musician than an actor so I just kind of scuppered the acting went back to music then I kind of got lineups and um you know, it was good. It was progressing, recording, just demos. And then I kind of, as well, got into Jim Jiminy by answering an ad in the back of the Melody Maker. That's such a classic. I did that. It was brilliant. They wanted a backing singer. So I joined that. They were writing. Um, really enjoyed that. Again, lots of harmonies and kind of that was a bit Billy. I'm not sure what kind of Billy it was, but uh, fast, uh you know, melodious, but, um, you know, not uh, rockabilly. Um, and then from there, the manager, Chris Ward, who's still a really good friend of mine, uh, manager of them, 
said he'd managed me. I can't remember the timings. It was probably this early 80s, coming up to middle 80s. Um, and um, he got me a record mirror. I won a competition, actually. They were looking for songwriter of the year or whatever. Mm-hmm. And I submitted a song, and I, I won that with a very slow ballad, and I was kind of on the front of record mirror. And I think through that and also the lineup I had at the time, we did some gigs. I think it was the Falcon in Camden that uh, the publisher, the lady, actually came down to see us it was um and she signed up but I I was kind of signed for a year um I can't even remember their name Lucien Grange I I can't remember the name now but so that kind of happened so that was kind of oh she might make it I was flown to Hollywood Hollywood Records had just started from Disney I think it was the daughter of someone who worked at Disney was given a you know a company or they made a company called Hollywood Records um, mm. I can remember getting the, the plane ticket and it had Mickey Mouse on it. Nice. But I went home by myself and I stayed three days, but I mean, I wasn't in a good place and stuff. And they didn't go for it, um, but they really liked the tapes and stuff, but they didn't go for it. So and then I kind of wasn't writing. So the kind of that fell apart. And then, I mean, I suppose if I had an opportunity, that would have been it. But you know, you got to you got to feel it's the right thing for you at the time. And looking back, well, I don't know. I was young. Maybe I should have just kind of gone for it a bit more. But uh, yes, you had three yeah. days in Hollywood. Yeah, God. yeah, r- really weird. <laughs> By myself in a hotel room, and then kind of went for this big meal with them, um, and felt completely intimidated. Um, Did you, the, get you know? Chris- no, no, no. I, I, we literally just sat. There was like a big round table. There was about 15 people around this table. And I can remember I ordered some oysters. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I was just over one thing. And a, no, I mean, I think it literally just lasted kind of an hour or something. And it was all kind of big wigs and I was in suits. And then the next day, I just went for a little shopping spree with the the lady and kind of, you know, um, and that was kind of it. And then I was on the the flight back but I you know had I gone maybe with somebody I would have felt less less intimidated and a bit yeah. more confident in terms of the big sell but there you go but yeah I've had quite a rich tapestry and different yes well that well, that was a very up, exciting one probably, probably wouldn't have ordered the yeah it had a different order on the menu really that would have they would have said don't, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't go I should that. have got drunk I you should have, got should have got drunk. I did hear a very funny. I was listening to a podcast the other day. Um, it was Alexis Sell, and he was talking to the one of the the woman who was writing on the um, the young ones, and she got she didn't get an invite to the BBC party. It was one of those kind of ones where you know the men all go, and it's oh you can go with Rick, and she said no, I don't want to go with Rick. So you know I want my own ticket for this gig. So yeah. She, so they they gave her a ticket, and she got one of those members who was in was remember that combo called Raw Sex? Who used to you know be there? Yeah, and um, that's right. And they got horribly drunk at this event, and um, I don't know they got over asked back again. So I think that's what you do when you you know when you get the big chance, just get horribly drunk and and then get banned. And at least you yeah. know that that's it. Really, that was it was it made yeah, it's, it's, it's all quite sanitized now. One wouldn't dream of doing that, I suppose, but. Uh... <laughs> Good old rock and roll. It was rock and roll. <laughs> so this took you up to the sort of almost the late eighties at this stage, and the 
the late 80s. And then I kind of started working with a guy called Paul Greendale, who was a guitarist from Hull, who really was into music. Now, he literally was kind of all the, you know, the Smiths and kind of he knew so much music history. Um, he didn't like jazz, which was interesting. So, but, so we kind of got together, you know, I was the singer, I played rhythm guitar, he played guitar, um, and we do duos, just two guitars, two electric guitars. We did quite a lot of the time. Um, and then sometimes we play with a band, different lineups, um, demoing. Those early demos were really good, actually. Um, but we didn't kind of go for it in terms of, oh, yeah, I had a, a band, I think a lineup called Big Brother. Uh, sorry, not Big Brother. <laughs> Brother Delphi. What am I saying, Big Brother? Brother <laughs> Delphi. Brother Delphi. And um, we did get some, I think Chris still managed us then. Um, and then we uh, we did get some company interest. We played uh, Ronnie Scott's a couple of times. And we did one gig really well. And then they came back or they, they came to see us the, the next gig there. And apparently one of our, members couldn't couldn't do it so we had to get a dep and it was all a bit of a disaster so that was that opportunity lost yes uh, oh. but I, I continued playing with him for quite a few years um and did you and did you then hook up with ian jury for one of his albums well that was an interesting story in itself but i met him in 1985 so that was before I kind of started working with Paul. I probably came out of Jim Jiminy-ish. Oh, God, sorry. You know, I said my memory is a bit... I was trying to actually write <laughs> write down my, a chronological kind of thing before, and it's kind of some gaps in terms of the years. But the period was all about, you know, when I moved to London, 82 or something, 82 to 90... So I kind of, yeah, meeting in was um, per chance. And then we kind of became buddies, really. I mean, I I hung out with him. My gran, it was fantastic how I met him, actually. I saw a documentary on telly. I mean, we all love Ian. And uh, I found him very sexy, even as a young girl. Mm -hmm. And um, I watched a documentary and uh, he was in a room and he had Venetian blinds behind him. And they said, oh, we lived down by Hammersmith River or something down by the bridge. And funnily enough, my grandparents lived over Hammersmith Bridge in Barnes. And I used to, from where I was living in Portobello, I used to go and catch the bus up to see them. And I was going over Hammersmith Bridge. And after I saw the documentary, I went, oh, I bet he's around here somewhere. And then I kind of did a bit of detective work. And I was on this bus coming back over the bridge. And I saw some mansion flats in front of me. And I went, there's some Venetian blinds. That looks kind of where the room he was talking. And I kind of found out where he lived and I went and rung his bell one night. Excellent. That's good. It's yeah, a bit creepy, but good. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you, I, I haven't done it with anyone else. No, own. no, don't, don't, oh. don't, don't, don't make oh, it. Yeah. But, we, but we became friends and I helped him out I drove for him and stuff because obviously he was quite disabled so I drove for him and you know I was still living at my you know I, I lived at my grandparents sometimes and um and yeah he got me singing on a couple of uh tracks I mean you know he was doing um Adrian Mole it was that period he was doing yes um, so they were kind of they had their 
heyday. Am I allowed to say that? Yes, you can. <laughs> but, you know, he, he was doing... Um, I'm still friends with the Blockheads. I mean, they're doing great gigs. Um, uh, but, yeah, so he got me singing on a couple of things, which is great. And, um, I mean, obviously, sadly, demise since 2000, but I knew him right up to the end, you know. Yeah. Um, and I know his son and daughter, Baxter and Jemima, and the Blockheads. And um, But he loved jazz. We'd sit in his working room. He had a drum kit. And he played me, you know, Theolonius Monk, Charlie Mingus. I mean, it was just so amazing to find someone who really loved jazz, like, proper. Because I don't think I'd found that. And actually, the music I'm writing now, obviously, it's not jazz because I'm kind of rock and roll. But it's definitely um, encompassing you know, giving me the freedom to, yes, I like jazz, so I want to incorporate some of that in the music. It doesn't just have to be bang, 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 rock and roll. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah. Like, oh, that's, yeah. that's an incredible bit. So then you, you, did you sing on his album at the late 80s, Apples? Was that the one that you were kind of... I think I did, yeah. I, I, yeah, I did. I, I was one of the vocals on the actual song Apples, and he did a, he did a great thing... The Night Train, uh, which wasn't music. It was, I can't remember, the poet. Oh, God, English poet. And it was called The Night Train, and it was about a big old steam engine. Um, And he did a couple of songs for the documentary, and I sung on that too, which was interesting. Right. Um, it sounds as like the sort of thing that Philip Larkin would um, write, but it, it wasn't. It wasn't him. I'm it was. Sorry, was it John remember. Benjamin? Yeah, maybe. Yes, yes, that sounds plausible. Or, yeah. oh, or could it be? Oh, a W H Auden. That's it. W H Auden, the Night Train. That was it. Nice. We like yeah. them. Yes, that's very exciting. So look, then you know we have the poll tax period, don't we? And then sort of nineteen ninety, Margaret Thatcher's out, but John Major is in, and then we have another decade as we trundle up towards that world that is Britpop and great optimism for the nineties. What was your what was your nineties period like? Because it's quite different to the eighties, I would imagine. I was clubbing. I was clubbing. So we we hit the, it was just it was just happy happy times wasn't it? Well, well, also I actually I I was uh, fortunate to bump into the Dazed and Confused crew when they were lit. You know, Dazed and Confused that there's a magazine and it's just oh, yes. yes and Rankin. Uh, so they were kind of best buddies. They'd met at um, uh, what's the Elephant and Castle College. London School of Economics, LSE, I think it was. and um, But they set up the magazine and it was very early days. And uh, I bumped into Jefferson at a party and we kind of fell in love and we had a couple of years together. So Days to Confuse, they were doing their magazine and also they were, they did, they were heavy on the promotion. So they, they set up club nights yeah. and they'd have lots of live music and, you know, it was Lee Bowery, it was the... Um, uh, oh gosh, Sheep on Drugs, uh, uh, Boys Wonder, um, oh god, uh, the, the, the Days of Smashing. There, there were some really uh, individual clubs that were quite, uh, uh, you know, everyone went, well known people went and stuff, and they'd kind of, you know, I didn't actually perform at them 
I performed once with a duo, jazz duo at one of their clubs, but I used to just kind of go and, you know, meet the bands. And well, actually, I was in a band called uh, uh, Baby June, uh, which again, we toured with Jason Donovan. Can you imagine? We did, we, we did a bit of that. Um, so that would have been 80, late 80s. I know yeah. 87, 88 or something like that. Um, and I sang on Things Can Only Get Better. So look, which... D- yes, let's hold it. Let's really, hold that yeah. thought, D-Ream, D- the anthem of the 90s. Um, so look, yeah. how did you get involved with D-Ream and that classic song? There's Chris Ward, who I mentioned before, who managed Jim Jiminy and then me. He was living just off Port Bella Road in a house and Peter... Doreen, Peter Cunner, had moved over from Ireland where he was heavily into music and bands. Um, and he got a room in the same flat and was concocting his Doreen uh, or writing songs anyway, writing songs very early days. I mean, it was it was so creative you know I mean there was days in the fuse doing kind of the journalistic uh, promotion sort of thing there was the clubs that they were you know uh, had a stage for these great kind of bands that were kind of live gig gigging bands with drums and guitar but mixing in club beats and stuff um, you know it was so expressive and then you know meeting people just in their early days yes who would go on to you know fully form these things that we know of now well absolutely uh, so when so so what was the record what was your memory of a recording things can only get better oh god it was, it was so fun because he he i think he they got some publishing time or free time uh in oxford street it was it emi i don't know i can't remember who it was but they kind of give free studio time to potential bands you know okay we'll go in there for a couple of weeks and see what you can come up with so I think he had some free time and he um his cohort at that time was a guy who I was also in a band with in their band called and we were on the word uh called uh Black Girl Rock right Jamie Petrie uh Jamie Petrie and he was friends he'd been in a band with both Paul Greendale, who I was in that band with, who I'd told you about the lineups, but also he knew Peter. And so they got some studio time and he said, we've got this song, you know, we just need loads of voices, a kind of anthem thing. So I was just a friend, you know, a singer friend. Oh, come and do it. You know, we haven't got any money, but just come and do it. You know, it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was like his girlfriend, there was me, there was another few friends all just around this microphone singing millions of tracks of things you know the chorus and stuff and it actually went somewhere and so we made a video we were on that top of the pops we were on or the video was on top of the pops i don't know if i was um i was on top of the pops with a band called we three that was just a session i was pretending to be a keyboard player but um yeah so kind of did it and didn't even think about it but um you know it, it was Great. And then, I mean, it resurged, didn't it, with the Labour Party, which kind of... 87. I, was that 87? So I remember... When was the, when was the original done then? 80... So that was 83. 
Was it that early? Wow. Yeah, so you so that was 83. So I'd only some... been in London a couple of years, yeah. So it all kind of snowballed in terms of, and I suppose there was a uh, kind of community of just, you know, Portobello back in that day was great. You know, it had a pub called the Warwick Castle. The Clash would drink in there. Um, I met... Um, you know, some theatre guys, um, what's his name, who writes the West End plays with the mute Tim Rice and the other guy, he was in there, you know, and it was kind of everyone, it was just a local boozer. So, you, yes. you know, a lot of the old punk bands and stuff. And so there was kind of a community of just kind of, oh, this is happening, do you want to have a go? And da, 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 and we're writing a magazine. And, you know, it was, it was a bit there. like... It was the, the, the English version of the factory, just people of all sorts kind of dipping in and out, artists and creators. I think, yeah, a lot of places, because I've done a lot of, I suppose, interviews from people in New York from that sort of 70s and 80s, and there was a sort of, there's a sort of honeymoon period where it's just all fantastic, isn't there? And then there's that moment where it all yeah because you were asking you were asking about brit pop and i mean i i think i mean when was brit pop so brit pop sort of came a bit like the it was probably 93 94 and then it really explodes to 97 98 and then it all gets a bit sour like every scene you know i think you can't keep i mean i can remember when brit pop came in you know before that people would be you know it was the horrible 80s those horrible drums i mean i in a way i think the 80s it's interesting the age that you are kind of you have to be lucky to be born into the right era in order to for your expression to be either picked up on or do it in the right way because the 80 i mean 70s music i think is the best the best songwriting the best players the best you know uh the best originality and mixture and then by the 80s i mean the club music came in uh which was great because it brought a real thrust of uh energy um before that i found the drums of the 80s really you know i love jazz so the drums of the 80s to me were really boring the program big sound reverb but what, what did you make of drums like working week and there was also i mean obviously Day as well but there was that kind of there was a, quite a few i mean suddenly that jazzy soul sound and there was a yeah. producer robin miller who had worked on a lot of people of that kind of genre i just wondered what you whether you ever were tempted with that sort of, I suppose, the working week Sade vibe, or whether it was something that didn't quite capture your... I think uh, when, when that, you know, I kind of appreciated it. And in fact, I think when I was signed to the publishing deal, which I still can't remember the company, but um, everything but the girl, because I can remember yes. going to a party with them uh, or they were at... And it was, to me, I don't know, I found that a bit twee, I suppose, coming from the vital disorders I always, and just loving, you know, the glam rock bands that I always wanted, you know, to have a bit of edge. And, you know, I love drums, real drums and, you know, guitar. So, you know, you know, probably to my detriment, I didn't actually embrace that. I was just down the road of rock and roll, um, you know, uh, so they just kind of pop up again, you know, on the radio, on top of the pops. I didn't really give it 
much thought. I mean, indie bands, I don't think, um, I was doing Jim Jiminy then, I don't, you know, the Smiths I didn't really listen to. I mean, again, I didn't buy records, so everything I heard would be, you know, singles, basically, yes. singles on the radio, or maybe late at night you'd hear other stuff. Um, the energy was all there. I mean, you know, when it moved to the Brit, I mean, obviously Blur, great songwriters. Um, yeah, I think it was a bit lost then. I, 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 the lost years, maybe. The lost call years. Them? But actually, you know, most people have five years and then they really kind of can't cope. But you've done really well on this stage. But then, I mean, it was kind of interesting because it was kind of 87, 89, you know, the ecstasy world. And we got all the dance stuff from the Stone Roses, Happy Monday, Primal Scream, Soup Dragons. And then you had the Orb came in. So there was that kind of vibe that was, you know, the chill out sound. Um, and then, you know, like you mentioned about the club music, that suddenly people want, people were feeling probably a little bit more optimistic optimistic in this sort of the sort of as it shuffled towards the mid 90s but then you were in a band called baby june weren't you for a and you were on arista records for your first single hey what's your name so things oh, were, well done things were looking <laughs> quite quite you had an optimistic sound at this stage weren't you that was through tim who's another dairy man he tim um tim Hegarty, um lovely lovely still long-standing friend um he he was a singer-songwriter he was in a band with peter connor in Derry back in the day before they came over to london so peter did dream uh tim did baby june i didn't join dream but i sung that song with them yes. um i think it'd been mentioned but i kind of joined baby june for a while and we did some tours jason donovan support i told you yeah uh, and, uh, you know, did some of those. I mean, why Why do you think... I mean, there was, there was a band called We Three um, who had a great record, uh, Back to the Old Routine, I think it was. Um, the same as Black Gold Rock, which included kind of live guitars and drums and bongos and stuff, but with a club beat and stuff. And, you know, one-hit wonders, I don't know, but they had a big record. So it was all quite transient, really. You know, you kind of sing for somebody and you do this gig... But I don't think you really kind of thought further than your nose in terms of, oh, yeah, let's make a great album and, you know, make it a concept album. I think it was it was quite a party atmosphere and I suppose maybe there was a bit of money around so people were being able to record and, you know, well, to I get... Think, yeah, because there was that... I mean, that big, period did start yeah. to sort of get a wash with money because I think the sales of CDs came in and obviously manufacturing costs aren't that great, but the markup is huge. And I think there was a bit of a champagne cocaine kind of moment in the in the 90s where suddenly there was a lot of PR companies, a lot of publishing companies, a lot of, you know, artists and hangers-on and, and everything was, you know... Um, you know Large. It was large. large. They were large. I mean, people well, were I remember, not... I do remember, I do remember when Britpop came along that it was a sudden kind of wake-up call to a lot of musicians who then tried to get the sound. So it was kind of, yeah, let's get some pedals for the guitar, you know, as opposed to the song is the thing and you want to hear the vocalist and it's kind of quite... Um, um, clean sounding and you're selling a song in terms of a performance it became much more we are the band the drummer is as important as a guitarist we're all going to turn up we're all gonna make a kind of bit more of a wall of sound 
Yes. Uh, which was exciting for everyone. Everyone needed it. It really kicked in. It was, it was, it was, um, I suppose after the kind of initial club second summer of love and stuff that came up from that, um, you know, that boundaries were being broken from the club stuff. So that allowed the Britpop thing to come in. Uh, and then that kind of stuck for, well, it's always stuck since then, really, in terms of that it's it's the kind of the format, isn't it? It's having two guitarists, a live drummer, a bass player, not necessarily having brass or anything to make the song sweet. It would be the kind of unit. Yeah, I think... Um... I don't, yeah, it was quite interesting because you had people like, you had the drum and bass thing, didn't you? Goldie and then Tricky came along with their kind of albums. But then, yeah, you're right, because there was bands like Sleeper and Atlastica who were very kind of like four-piece, no messing about. But then within about 12, 18 months, everyone suddenly got a little bit of a string section thrown in. It was a band called My Life yeah. Story. Oh, right. So suddenly they were yeah. like, you know, suddenly every band had this kind of, oh my God, who, who's the little orchestra? Oh, it's My Life Story, who was another band who started with that sound. So yeah, it was, it was kind of interesting. But then by 80, uh, by 97, 98, the party had slightly changed. And then... When, Nat- did, when did the Verve do um, the Sweet Symphony? Because I remember that was enormous and that had strings in it. And Richard Ashcroft, the Verve, was that that was kind of Brit poppy? Was it a bit later? Yeah. I don't know. If it, I think by it's then, I think everybody had started to sort of the party had slightly got a bit. Um, yeah. yeah, you know, there was a, there was a, you know, like any scene, the casualties start to mount up rather quickly, don't they? You know, and suddenly everyone's going in rehab quickly, or they're sort of dribbling, just dribbling for the sake of dribbling. So, um, and then, you know, the music industry gets this wake up with Napster kind of on the horizon that no one sees coming. And then it's sort of like, oh, it's all a bit too late. I think we've just lost our industry. And it's like, what do you mean we've lost our industry? We're making billions. It's like, well, we were, but we're not anymore. So, yeah, so um, I think it was 95, actually, or 96. It was was definitely, yeah, it was 90, no, it was 97. The bittersweet symphony came out. So, so it was kind of towards kind of the end. And I remember companies just kind of it was going from, oh yeah, these companies, all the companies are oh, that's what happened as well, is that the little shoot-off companies, which they, they so you get EMI, but then you kind of get fractions of EMI to kind of uh um uh, that came along with Britpop. So it was a bit more cool to not sign to EMI, but you'd sign to their indie label whichever that was and so i think that was the start of the breakdown of the big companies that they became more of the independent labels through either money of the big companies and then and then as the bottom was falling out of just spending lots of cash on people the indie companies kind of that that was kind of it and then you kind of really have to start promoting yourself and go find the indie companies as opposed to just kind of send off to the big companies so that kind of happened yeah so what about yourself after after baby june had finished and um so what happens <sighs> what happens towards your suddenly team tony gets into power and things can only get better God, what year are we talking about so now? from 90 what 97 you know we have the, the you know the people's princess dies tony blair's in 
And then... I think I was I was kind of wrapped up writing with Paul, and we always kind of wanted to. He was always had ambitions, you know, to kind of get the deal and stuff like that. So we kind of write and recording. We didn't kind of go for publishing. We kind of, you know, I don't know. I think a lot of years just kind of. You know, we kind of make demos, we, get, you know, do gigs, we get some photos done, but it didn't kind of really ever amount to anything. But we really liked each other and we liked working with each other. So that was kind of enough. It was fine. And I suppose then years just kind of rocked past, really. I mean, then we're into kind of, oh, and I had my daughter in 2001. Yes. So, yes. you know, I think then it was kind of, well, you know, I was still writing, still having a guitar. I got into doing a bit of computer music in um, Pro Tools and then Garage Band and while, you know, bringing her up. And I also, um, I became part of a duo uh, with Martin and he used to play the old Irish, the Irish pubs. He'd do Friday, Saturday and Sunday. He did it for years and that was a paying gig. So I did that kind of um, for about four or five years in the uh, early 2000s because I was a mum now and I needed money. So kind of, you know, the things had kind of uh, changed. So I did that for a few years. All the, all the while then kind of just trying to find, you know, my own voice in terms of writing, I suppose, which is kind of only just coming to fruition now all those years later in terms of me being happy with the type of music and stuff yeah yeah so did you have a period where I mean obviously you know having family and stuff is quite a huge focus but did, was there a period where you just music just kind of stopped being a thing in your life and you just not really it was always there because I was either doing the gigs with um, Martin doing the the country and western places town and country as we called it um but then i'd still you know every now and then do oh someone's putting on a show or do do you want to play a few songs so it was there was always a bit of rehearsing and a bit of playing but it it was you know it 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 wasn't as ambitious i suppose in terms of we are a band let's get a deal sort of thing it was more just kind of uh, an actual just doing it in your life you know which is um, you know, there was always gigs to play down Portobello and maybe in the West End. And, you know, because by then you've got a network of people who are always putting something on. So, you know, it, it bubbles along in the background. Um, and then, you know, with my daughter, you know, that did take her. And I was working full time too to pay the bills. So obviously there was less time. I mean, she's 20 now. She's born 2001. Um, and basically, to cut a long story short, I've come to Norwich four years ago to look after my mum from London, working full time um, and in 2017. So those kind of few last few years, um, 14, 15, 16, 17, you know, my daughter was a teenager. It wasn't easy and stuff. So I was just working full time and didn't, you know, occasional gig. But then I came up to Norfolk to look after my mum, who sadly died last year. But She's got a house and it had a shed in the bottom of the garden, which I made into a studio. So I've got a drum kit down there, amps and stuff. And I got into Logic, working on Logic. Um, right. You know, learning about that. So I've decided that as opposed to getting in another band, although I've no musicians up here, I just want to record by myself and do, which you can do now on the computer, remote sessions. 
um, you know, get people in a drummer or a bass player just to send, you know, send them the track. They put their stuff down, send it back. And I want to, um, I'm making an album uh, just by me, only me, and that it can just have a concoction of whatever I like in it. Yes. And in terms of my ambition, it's not really to be in the record, uh, the, the industry, because it's changed so much. Uh, there's so much time that you have to sell yourself, you know, involved in promotion as opposed to just kind of doing it that I just kind of, I actually just enjoy making it. So I thought if I make this album, then at least I've made a nice album and I can then move on to something else. Um, and, you know, my friends can buy it. And if it gets any interest, it will. If it doesn't, then it doesn't matter. So no. that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. That's fantastic. You wouldn't believe how many people have a similar story at the end. Really, awesome. really. Yeah, loads. Yeah. I mean, people like, oh, yes, I'm writing with someone in Berlin and then we get, a, you know, a bass player in LA and then you get someone, you know, and it's like, and then someone mixes it all together and it sounds like we're all in yeah. the same room. And it's like, yeah. wow, it's really different. You know, yeah, so the collaborations, I think it was happening like that anyway, but the last two years have made everyone go, right, I'm going to learn this, I'm going to have to learn that. I'm just going to have to get with the program and this is actually yeah. going to work. And then realising, actually, this is quite a lot easier than thinking, I'll get a you know, train to London, then I'll go and see so-and-so and then do this or fly here. It's like, actually, you know, we all got to be honest, travelling when you get older it just gets more and more exhausting. You think, I can't be bored. Exactly. And it's a convenient way that you don't have to be involved. And, you know, you know, if you join a band, you're kind of morally obligated, you know, and doing these remote sessions, people can carry on with their life. And all you want is, is you know, like I've got an amazing vibraphone player, Roger Beaujolais, um, who's, who's uh, played, you know, and that, I probably, without the internet and without Facebook and obviously with the lockdown or whatever, I probably wouldn't have met him or, I, you know, I'd have to wait to bump into him in a gig. So it just, it brings it to the fore. So you can literally reach out. I hate that word, phrase, but you can reach out to anyone and just go, you know, everyone wants a gig at the end of the day and even kind of, you know, without people involved in well-known bands, but a lot of working musicians, you know, if you, you pay mates rates or whatever, they're quite happy to oblige. Yeah. So, you, you know, it's out, you know, you can use that. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a thing. I mean, yeah, you just won't believe how many people are doing this exactly the same. I do miss gigging, though. I miss gigging because at the heart of it, I don't see myself as a singer. I see myself as a performer. Yes. And, you know, I think my, my, uh, my great thing is being on stage, you know, the audience, you know, that's what I'm good at is being on stage and the audience gets it and stuff. So it has been a few years since I've been on stage. I mean, I, I got a band together and we were getting some interest called uh, Agents of Play and that was my last band in London. And then that kind of split up and I had to move up here. So that's kind of swore me off being in a band. But it will come again. I've, I've got some players around which once the songs are written and the, the album's recorded and there's some festivals up here to Harlequin, I'd really like to play next year. I went for my first time last year, you know, and that could be a creep back into the live thing, but it has to kind of be a bit more thought out and organic because I think the days of being in a band because you think you're going to make loads of money and travel the world, um, which it used to be a reality, you know, for years and years, and it's just not anymore, you know, I don't think. 
No, it's probably, yeah, no, it's kind of, you know, yeah, I suppose one gets a bit more realistic, you know, it's kind of, um, but it was fun. It was, it, the people, you know, have great stories and have great moments. And, you know, sometimes go, oh, yeah, God, it was all so terrible. Middle of winter, freezing cold, vehicles breaking down, getting in, at, you uh, know, yeah, four, yeah. getting in at four in the morning, sort of dragging the equipment upstairs and into your flat and thinking, oh, my God. Well, when you're younger, I think it is a young man's game in a way, you know. I mean, because, you know, when you're young, you just don't even think twice about it. You just do it. You're hanging out with your friends. You know, you're, it's all exciting and new, you know. And as you get older, it's not it's not new anymore. So you and you're getting older. And you, as you say, you can't be bothered yeah. to to to, you know, have a have, uh, you know, to to do to do without in order to get some small gain. So, Crisp comfort. Comfort crisps. is what we want yes. in the of our own home. A diet of crisps, chocolate, and um, some sort of special brew just isn't going to happen when you're in your fifties, is it? Really? That's right. It's going to be right. hell with you. If you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so look, yeah. if, so if you were able to tell your sixteen-year-old self, you know, some little word of wisdom or some sort of pointer that you think, oh yeah, that would have been really handy with the experience and. Uh, knowledge and wisdom that you've gained over the decades is there anything that you would have thought oh yeah I wish someone had mentioned that or wished I'd focused on that a bit more um, but that's life but well, musically was, well just musically but potentially life but yeah sort of both you know they, it, what would you say to your 16 year old self I think it's all about confidence. I think life is about confidence, really. You know, I really do because people can see me as quite outgoing and a performer and stuff. But I think, you know, um, unless one has confidence, one isn't going to discover one's own potential, really, because, you know, you can do so much in terms of a talent or a, a want to express but with that you have to have the confidence that you're going to take it somewhere you know if you're if you're a painter you have to have an exhibition you can't just paint at home if you are a singer you have to be in a band and sing in front of people if you're a writer uh don't bother about singing get with the people who are going to you know you have you know and i think but I think when you're young, you just go with the flow a lot of the time. You just, you don't, you know, unless, I mean, obviously some young people are very ambitious and they know immediately or it, they just know yes. and they follow a path that's going to help them progress in a certain thing. You have to be thick-skinned, you have to be, you know, work hard, you have to be, you have to really want it. Maybe I didn't want it enough in terms of, you know, really getting the deal. It, I think, again, I was quite intimidated by the whole thing. It was great when you're in a rehearsal studio and you're playing or in a gig, but when you go into a meeting with these bigwigs, you know, it's a different thing. And I think that that side of it used to scare me quite yes. a lot. So, you know, um, so I think the 16-year-old self, I, I probably would have said, practice, practice, practice more. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, well, a lot of people say, you know, say the same thing, actually. They... I took up the cello four years ago when I moved up here. My dad was a cello player, being a string arranger. And I thought, if I'm going to go and stay with my mum, I'm going to find something and I'm going to start it and I'm going to actually really study this and progress and learn. And it's a very hard 
instrument any string instrument is um but i have been keeping it up and i really really enjoy it i think music for me is at the heart of it in terms of just enjoying it making it and stuff and the, the kind of business side of it i mean, i love business but the whole you know promotion and selling thing which maybe artists say i don't know is that that's kind of another side of it which you know i don't spend much time on and i don't really want to <laughs> no it's quite no i think I, yeah i think it's really hard to try and get your brain to do two things i'm not saying it's impossible but i think there is that kind of the selling the pr is quite a different gig isn't it i mean you know? twitter twitter i don't do twitter and i don't want to do twitter and i don't want to be in a position where i've got to be on twitter in order to sell a product no. I mean, I do, you know, people, I think people hire people, young people to do all the social media stuff now so that they don't have to do it, which that would be great. My daughter can do it. You know, they're all au fait, the young yeah, people. I think, yeah. that. I think, and also I think there's only so much that's really going to help. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's like the market. It's, it's like spending your time, spending your time. I'd rather spend my time for four hours down the studio playing my guitar and stuff than I would you know, being on Twitter for three hours or Instagram trying to, I mean, obviously it's important because it is the age we live in, but that's where I'm at. You know, I'd rather play and enjoy um, than have to get involved in all that. So I'm not sure where it's all going to lead to, yes. but there'll be a hard copy album at the end of it. So Brilliant. Is that hopefully going to be this year's kind of deadline? Well, sadly, my mum died in October, so I'm kind of an executor and I'm living in her house, so I've got to sort all that out. It's going to take some months. So I would think that would go up to summer. So really, probably realistically not. But by next year, hope you know, next year, definitely then. Once this is sorted out, it's my last kind of obligation. And then I literally will be free up to, uh, yeah, get Good. it, get it get it in the bag as they get say the oh they'll be very we'll look forward to it and bizarrely a year will go whizzing by won't it so it's, it always fr- does yeah it always does. well look thank you ever so much for this and if you want i can always send you the link and you can always use it elsewhere you're this fabulous i'd thing. love to i i literally hate the sound of my own voice uh talking and singing <laughs> that is but um I think we all, be, do. we all do. It's just, do we? Do oh we? God, absolutely. I remember Roger Daltrey, Roger Daltrey overhearing him in an interview saying he absolutely detests his singing voice. And that, that's hard. I mean, when you're, when you're that kind of big and you've got to do that many gigs, that must be very hard. I think, I think it's <laughs> okay. I think it's okay until you hear yourself and then you think, oh my God. I don't, oh my God, that sounds appalling. I can't believe my voice. You know, I think some, some, I think there's another, I can't remember who, and he's really big. And he literally just, you know, he makes his records, but he never listens to them, never listens back to his voice, which is kind of, which is, uh, it's a hard game. I mean, even David Bowie said the other day, he said, he hate he hated singing. There's a great profile on Netflix. I can't remember what it's called. London something, and uh, he hates he hates um, singing. Um, he said it's not like sex, is it? Where you can enjoy it, um, but he hates singing. But someone's got to sing it, and that's why he did it. So I know it's true. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, it's like it's a bit like the first time you see yourself. You know, I don't know, acting or in some performance. 
And it's a bit shocking, isn't it? Oh my goodness, that's, is that me? Oh dear, you know, anyway, it's interesting. Anyway, look. I'd love to, uh, thanks ever so much, David, for yeah well amazing and so much and there was so much you know that you you know i hadn't realized actually about your the the other bit of theater there which was very exciting so uh yes interesting stuff anyway look thank you again and i'll keep in touch lovely okay david take care lovely speaking to you cheers okay Bye. bye and that dear listener is the end of the interview just in case you hadn't guessed anyway i love leaving that bit in because it's so fumbly and bashful. Anyway, look, massive thank you to Delphi Newman for giving me the time for that interview or casual chat, really. Anyway, you've got the info, you know what's happening, and that's the main thing. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive and groovy. Otherwise, you know, why bother? Um, and all these interviews have been archived. Yes, they have. And uh, you can find those on Spotify, I know check it out itunes pod bean which is lovely um anyway look have a great week stay safe